So, again, I have a test on Sunday, and I am going to be explaining as a way of preparing for that. But to be fair, I'm not doing it a day before the test, so that's all well and good. So, the f- I didn't even. Did I explain the subject I'm going to be explaining? No, the subject is physics electric charges, fields, and potentials. Or to make it easier for everyone, electrostatics. Electro means charge, static. Statics comes from static, meaning rest. So electrostatics is basically us studying electric and magnetic effects of charges at rest. And by electric and magnetic effects, I mean forces, fields, and potentials. Now, what are electric charges? An electric charge is essentially just a fundamental property of matter due to which it's able to produce and experience magnetic and electric effects. Now, electric charge is something that's usually confused with electronic charge. Electronic charge is basically the fundamental entity of a charge. It's the least possible charge. It's it's the charge possessed by a proton and an electron, with opposite signs, of course. Um, The electron getting a more negative sign. Now, the types of charges... Um, They came from Benjamin Franklin. He's the one who gave them their names. We have a positive and a negative. And the positive one, an example for that would be a proton, which gives us a plus 1.6 times 10 to the power 19, minus 19 Coulomb charge. And then we have a negative charge, which is the electron, giving us minus 1.6 times 10 to the power of minus 19 Coulomb. Now, when I was expressing both of these, I used the term Coulomb. The Coulomb is basically the SI unit of charge. It's basically the amount of current flowing through a conductor per second. We get this from the equation I is equal to Q by T, where I is the current, T is the time. And one Coulomb, therefore, is one ampere second. Now, after this, we come to charging a body. Charging a body is basically us transferring electrons from one body to another. If we remove electrons, the body becomes positive because before if it was neutral, that means the plus and minus are all happy and they're equal and everybody's happy. But once we remove the electrons, then the positive charges, the protons gain the upper hand and they start, you know, dominating with a more positive charge. But then say that on the other hand, we're just adding electrons. So now the electrons, the negative charge is overpowering the positive charge. And because of that, the whole mass ends up negative. Now, what are the properties of electric charge? Like charges repel, unlike charges attract. You know this. Charges are... Oh, it looks like I didn't finish writing this. So basically, it's saying that you can add charges, right? They're just added like numbers. If you have a plus and minus charge... You add them like you would normal numbers. You don't put any signs or you don't put in any coordinates. They're just added, like scalar quantities, because charge is a scalar quantity. Usually when we go for vectors and you put in a negative sign, it's usually because it's going the opposite direction. But here the negative sign is just so that we know that know how to differentiate between two charges. And yeah, after that, the charge of an isolated system is conserved. This is called the conservation of charge. And usually throughout the lesson, a lot of the things that we'll be solving deal with a charge in an isolated system. So remember this. Number five or four, I forgot. Charge is relativistically invariant. So this means that whether the charge is at rest, whether you're throwing it around a room, whether you're shooting it into space, the charge is always going to be the same. Maybe the mass will change, you never know, but the 
but the charge will be the same. And finally, charge is quantized. The net charge on a body or a particle will be equal to an integral multiple of the charge on an electron. Because, like I said, the charge on something, the most intrinsic value, the most fundamental entity of a charge is the electronic charge. So it makes sense that when you're either adding or taking away electrons, it has to be in whole numbers or integers because when you add, it's positive. When you subtract, it's negative. And yeah, that's about it. The net charge on a body or particle will be equal to the integral multiple of the charge on electrons. And yeah, this can be represented by Q is equal to plus or minus NE. Next, we come to conductors. Conductors are basically the materials that allow electricity to pass. Because these guys are the ones with free electrons. Think of metals. They have like literally a sea of electrons just floating around. They're all loosely bound, rather, not a sea. Now, these charges always remain on the outer surface of the conductor due to the mutual forces of repulsion in the static state. And yeah, they do not reside in the conductor. This is something that will come in handy later on in this chapter, the fact that charges never reside in the conductor. And finally, the distribution of charge depends on the shape of the conductor. The opposite of a conductor would be an insulator. These guys are the ones without free electrons and they're really bad conductors. And yeah, even when they are charged, the charges are localized, they're not conducted. Now, how do we charge things? How do we electrify things? Let's say we have two bodies, A and B. Let's say that A has a lot of loosely bound electrons, very careless A, come on. And B wants more electrons. It maybe has a deficit, you never know. So the first method would be charging it by friction, charging B by friction. So now you're rubbing the two together. So the kinetic energy is suddenly gone up. So now the electrons, the force of attraction between the electrons and whichever atom they were coming from, that's a lot, that's reduced, right? So now they're free to leave because we supplied the energy. So now the electrons leave A and move on to B. B becomes negatively charged, A becomes positively charged. The next one is by conduction. Let's say we have a positively charged, this time, a positively charged A and um, a neutral B, both of them being conductors. Now we bring them in contact, and because they're such good conductors, the charge goes from A to B. Now if we separate them again, both of them will be positively charged, but the positive charge on A would have reduced. Now an important thing to note here is that when we take, say, two bodies of the same mass, same dimensions, and say let's call them a and b and a is charged with some charge q after a is after a and b come in contact and then they're pulled apart then a has a charge of q by 2 and b has a charge of q by 2 so it gets split equally and the final method is by induction this is the one where it goes without contact so here we're just taking um, a positively charged A and a neutral B, we bring them closer. So now A is like sort of teasing B, right? So all the electrons in the mass B move over to the side of the positively charged A. They're still not in contact. And all the positive ones are left behind as a result of that. Now after this, we earth it because earth acts as an infinite source or sink of charge. So B is um, grounded to the earth. And now all the charges, all the positive charges go from B to the earth. 
right? So at the end of the day, B becomes negatively charged and A continues to be positively charged. And that is the end of the first part of this chapter. Next, we come to this amazing, amazing um, law called Coulomb's inverse square law. Now, one thing that I find really beautiful about this is that when we were learning about gravitation, we came across a very similar formula. Like, they're almost the same. And just like this symmetry, just like not symmetry, this parallel connection between like two different fields of physics, it just does. I really like it. So, yeah, um, Coulomb's inverse square law. Okay, I'm really excited. It says that the electrostatic force of attraction or repulsion between any two static point charges is directly proportional to the product of the magnitudes of the charges and inversely proportional to the square of the distance between them. Right, and here the force is acting on the line joining the charges. So basically, say we have a charge Q1 and Q2, it's separated by distance r. The force, either attractive or repulsive, depending on the charge, the positive or negative nature of the charge, um, that force is directly proportional to the magnitude of the product. Well, if you look for the magnitude of the force, but it's directly proportional to the product of the magnitudes Q1, Q2, and it's inversely inversely proportional to one well, it's inversely proportional to r squared the distance squared right so f is equal to q1 q2 divided by r well it's proportional to q1 q2 divided by r but now we need an equality what gives us the equality we need some constant this constant is going to be k k is basically 1 by 4 pi times epsilon naught which basically has a value approximately being 9 times 10 to the power of 9 newton per meter newton meter squared per coulomb squared now in this case the epsilon naught that i was talking about epsilon is basically the permittivity of a medium basically how easy it is for things to permeate through a medium and epsilon naught is the permittivity of free space if we have to go for a relative permittivity then we go for the epsilon naught of that medium I mean the epsilon of that medium divided by the epsilon naught value which is basically the it's basically a constant the permittivity of free space now after this we come to Coulomb I think I've said it right when we talked about Coulomb at the very beginning we talked about it as um, a product of charge and time, right? But in this case, we're going to say, we're going to give it a different meaning. One coulomb is the charge which is separated by a distance of one meter from an identical charge that repels it by a force of nine times ten to the power of nine newtons in the air. How cool is that? So, yes, say we have the force acting in the air, then it becomes... 1 by 4 pi epsilon naught rk times q1 q2 by r squared but if it was in a medium then in this case we take the permittivity in the medium so that would become um, e naught times er where er is the relative permittivity of that medium so it becomes 1 by 4 pi e naught times er times q1 q2 divided by r squared following this if we have to look at Coulomb's law in the vector form, then we know that the direction, if it's if the force is going from one to two, right? 
um, I'm sorry, if we're measuring the distance from like one to two, then the force will also be in the direction of one to two, right? And in this case, the, um, what do you call it? The total force will have to be K times Q1, Q2 divided by R21 whole squared times R21 with a cap on. This cap tells us that it's going from one to two. So this cap, R21 cap, has a value of R2 minus R1 divided by R2 minus R1 with the modulus which basically tells us to take the magnitude. So on the top, we're subtracting them the normal vector way, but then on the bottom, we're dividing it by the magnitude. So at the end of the day, um, if we substitute that in the equation, we get that the force is equal to K times Q1, Q2 divided by R cubed um, times the magnitude of the difference. Okay. Now that that is done, because, I don't know, I just get really confused sometimes when I try to figure out the directions, I have to work on that. We're going to talk about the direction of the forces. So, say we have um, Q1 and Q2. Q1 is positive, Q2 is negative. Now, Q1 likes Q2, so the force um, from... Q1 onto Q2 would be towards Q2, and the same way minus Q2 likes plus Q1, so it goes from minus Q2 towards plus Q1. The next case is when we have minus Q1 and minus Q2, or plus Q1 plus Q2. In both cases, because they repel each other, the forces on either of them are in opposite directions. Now, what are the properties of Coulomb's force? Coulomb's force is a conservative force. Here we talk about an action-reaction pair. And it's a central force because it always acts on the line joining the two charges, and it may be attractive or repulsive. Following this, we come to the principle of superposition. The principle of superposition basically tells us that in a system of charges, the force on any one of the charges is unaffected by the presence of the other charges. It's like literally one of those quotes where you're saying, keep your head high, girl, everybody's gonna talk shit. So just consider that, but for like charges, there's like a new charge, it has some effect in its hometown, our initial medium, but then it comes into this new big city and now this little girl from a tiny town is all scared and stuff. Now, there are two possible situations. One, this girl dulls her shine and blends into the crowd. And number two, this girl stays true to herself. When it comes to charges, they're the second girl. They stay true to themselves, and the force on any one of the charges is unaffected by the presence of any other charge. And when we ever try to add all of them for the net force, we just find the vector sum of all the forces exerted by all the other charges. So say we have questions like, you have a square. You have charges Q1, Q2, Q3, and Q4 on the sides of the square. Now, tell us, what is the net force experienced by an object in the middle? 
Now, in this case, you're basically just trying to find the directions of the forces and you just try to figure out the magnitudes in your own head. Say we have Q1 is equal to Q2 equal, equals Q3 equals Q4. They're all equal to Q, let's say. And the one at the middle is Q0, right? So now there is a force between Q0 and Q2 or Q. Both of them are positive. So this means that the force on Q by Q the force by Q2 on Q0, Q2 hates Q0, so it tries to push it away. So it's going away from Q2. The same way Q4, which would have been on the opposite vertex, that's also positive. Q0 is also positive, so now it goes in the opposite direction. Same thing happens with Q1 and Q3. So in all these cases, if we look for the vector sum, they're both acting in opposite directions, right? So they just cancel out. The same thing goes for like everywhere else. You're just trying to find the direction of the forces, figure out if anything cancels, and if it doesn't cancel, then just add it up. And then you just like find the magnitude between them. That's literally all it's about. So, now that we're done with force let's move on to electric field this i think is probably like my favorite part because it's just like so straightforward man you don't even have to use your head that much it's like if you have positive this is a drill if you have a negative charge that's the drill if you have both check this out so it's like you don't have to use too much brain juice so it's like you can like conserve all that brain juice here and then apply it later because i swear some other topics after this are just a headache man so electric field let's talk about the basics of it the space around a charge in which its influence can be felt by any other charge is the electric field so now when we look for like a proper definition of the electric field that can be used like for all situations, like more of like a control idea of an electric field, right? Like our baseline. This would be the force experienced by a test charge, a positive little happy unit test charge kept at a point. Um, and this point that positive test charge at that point, it has to be much lesser than the charge that's producing that electric field, that's giving you that effect, okay? Otherwise, it'll just disrupt the whole thing. So the force per unit charge that is felt on that test charge, let's say Q0, is the electric field at that point. So say we have some source charge, important guy, Q. Now we have some tiny little baby test charge, Q0, right? It could be positive or negative. It doesn't really matter. I just said positive because I like positive. So anyway, it can be positive or negative. You just like keep it anywhere around that thing. So the effect, the force rather, that we're going to be feeling per unit charge will be the electric field. So yeah. We need to make sure that our test charge is very small. So when we try to figure out this whole thing, we get that the electric field is equal to force divided by Q0, where Q0 tends to zero, right? Because it's really small. So let's consider a plus Q and a P charge, right? A P. 
P is basically the position of that test charge. Now let's say we take a negative test charge. We have plus Q and negative Q naught at P. Now, in this case, the electric field, because it's positive, is going outward, right? By convention. But on the other hand, the direction of the force is towards plus Q because it's minus Q minus likes plus, so it goes towards it. But say in this, we have the same arrangement, in this case, we take a plus Q charge, right? So in this case, again, the electric field is outwards, but the force is also outwards because they're negatives, they hate each other. So in this case, we find that the direction of the force has changed, but what has remained constant? The electric field. So the direction of electric field is not dependent on the source charge, it's dependent, sorry, it's dependent on the source charge, but not on the test charge. So we know that E is equal to F divided by Q naught. Um, so if we go for like the magnitude, E is equal to F by Q. F is KQ times Q naught, because that's the second charge, divided by R squared, divided by, the whole thing divided by Q. So the QQs cancel, so we end up with E is equal to KQ by R squared, because the test charge on the bottom cancelled out the Q2 on the top, right? So yeah, if we do have to find the direction, then it's from, if it's a positive uh, source charge, then it's from the charge outside. And if it's negative, then it's from outside towards the charge. So think of it like this. The plus Q loves everybody, wants to give everything to the world. So the plus Q's electric field lines are always outwards. It really likes everybody, just keeps giving outwards, right? So everything moves out. And it's all radially outwards, right, from Q, plus Q. Now, when we look at a minus Q source charge, minus Q is a lot more greedy, more of a Mr. Scrooge kind of guy. So it just like pulls everything towards it. Everything needs to be centered around minus Q. So in this case, the electric field is radially inwards towards minus Q. Another thing we need to know about the electric field is that it's a vector. It has direction, it has magnitude. If we go for the magnitude, the magnitude of electric field is equal to F divided by Q. And from this, in a uniform electric field, we can say that F is equal to Q dot E, or Q times E. And yeah, next we come to the electric field due to a system of charges. Um, the net electric field at a point P, say, will be equal to the vector sum of all the electric fields produced by individual charges. This is the same thing that we did with the forces as well. And again, remember when I told you about the question that they would give us like about force, like there's a square, charges at the vertices, another charge in the middle, find the net force on the charge in the middle. So you do this, they give us like the same cues here. But like, in this case, we don't have to like use our head and try to figure out the direction of the electric field lines because it's always the same. When it's a negative source charge, the field lines are towards the source charge. But if it's a positive source charge, they go away from it, right? So now let's consider a charge in a uniform speed, uh, unif uniform electric field. What am I saying? Did I forget how to speak? So charge in a uniform electric field. When we say uniform, we're saying that it's an electric field that does not vary with position and it doesn't, it's always the same at 
any instant of time at one yeah at any instant of time so in this case like i said the force will be q times e now we come to electric field lines this is basically the representation of the electric field so electric field lines are imaginary lines which represent the pattern of electric field lines in space they're drawn in such a way that the tangent to the line at any point gives us the direction of the electric field at that point so if we had like a curve okay if it had a positive slope that would mean that what would the positive slope mean a positive slope would mean that the direction of the electric field is positive or it's along the direction of that tangent i think i phrased it wrong so yeah the tangent at a point gives the direction of the resultant electric field huh and the field lines originate from the positive charge and terminate at the negative charge remember because the positive charge is the one that's giving it away and the negative charge is the one that's taking it so eventually all field lines originate from a positive point and terminate at a negative charge now can two electric field lines intersect no they can never intersect because if they do then we'd have two directions of electric field lines at the point right because the tangent tells us the resultant electric field's direction now electric lines of force i think i forgot to touch up on this this is exactly like how we find the direction of the electric field we just look for the tangents and the direction of that the direction the tangent is pointing in would be the direction of our um, force next properties of electric field lines they originate from a positive charge and terminate at a negative charge direction of the tangent at any point on the line of force gives the direction of the result in electric field they never intersect in a charge-free region electric field lines can be taken to be continuous curves without any break so basically we're just considering it to be like a completely free space they just extend for as far as they can as long as they can and they're like nobody breaking it up in between and finally electric field lines don't form any closed loops because the electric field is a conservative field right and when we look for a cons when we look at a conservative charge when it moves from a to b the work done is path independent it only depends on the initial and final configuration so if you go went in a closed loop then you'd have nothing after this we come to the field lines due to a pair of charges again you just try to figure out the direction of the electric fields and just see where their field lines are intersecting. Wherever they're intersecting, just try to find the direction of the net electric field. The direction of the net electric field will tell you where how to draw the field lines. And that's the end of the first part of electric field. Well, I think that's the full thing. I think the next one would be electric flux. I don't know if that falls under like the same category. I don't know. So now we move on to electric flux. Electric flux is basically like it's basically like you're taking a water balloon, poking holes in it, and then getting all scientific and figuring out laws for these holes that you've made and the water coming out of them, right? So with that in mind, let's move on to what electric flux actually is. Electric flux is the measure of the number of electric field lines passing normally through a surface. So basically, when we look at electric flux, what we're doing is the electric field lines would have happily been passing. Everybody's happy. They're having a nice day. But then we decide to be complete geniuses and just put a surface, a random plain surface 
you know, right in the middle of that electric field. And then we try to check out um, how many are escaping, right? Now, when we look at electric flux, it's easy to say that, hey, is this, it's easy to ask um, whether this is basically us going and counting the number of electric field lines escaping or something. That's not what we do. We're just comparing things. We're just putting different surfaces and different positions and seeing which one is best. So let's just take a normal paper sheet, sheet of paper, sheet of paper, paper sheet, what is that? So we take a normal sheet of paper. Now we have a random electric field. Let's just say it's a uniform electric field, right? So now let's say that we just like plop that piece of paper on that field. Before I go into anything further, I would like to tell you right now that what I'm going to say next will blow your mind. And that is that area is a vector. It's not a scalar. Area has a direction. What is that direction? It's basically perpendicular to the surface in the outer direct, outward direction. So if you put your hand, you know, your palm on a table, right? And if you looked at just like the top of your hand, right? Let's just say that this is the... Um, plain surface the top of my hand right so now um the direction of the area vector of my hand can either be upwards or downwards but according to convention it goes in the outward direction right so i consider my palm to be like the inside so the outward direction would be towards the ceiling so area has direction remember that so yeah now Let's go back to our uniform electric field and our random little paper. Poor paper always gets dragged into our experiments. So we just like plop it in the middle. Now let's say that we keep this paper, um, you know, right along, like perpendicular to the field lines. So we're just like placing the paper on the bottom. So it's like, I think you get what I'm saying. I don't know. So you're just like placing it in the middle. So at this point of time, what's happening is the face of the paper, because the direction of the field, the area vector is perpendicular to the surface, the direction of the area vector of our paper is going to be in the same direction as that of our electric field right so in this case we can say that when theta is equal to zero then the flux is maximum because we have more field lines crossing right because everything has more space to come through but then we slowly rotate our paper we like push it backwards so at this point of time the angle that the air the area vector is making with the direction of the electric field that's slowly increasing to some angle say theta right and as we increase it um, all these lines of the electric field, they start to get more and more left out. So the number that are actually, the number of field lines that are actually passing through the surface decreases. So as the value of theta increases, um, the, what do you call it? The flux decreases. And finally, we keep the paper along the direction of the electric field. So at this point of time, the area vector is perpendicular to the field line. So at this point of time, there's nothing passing through the paper. Let's just say that this paper is super duper small. So there's nothing passing through the paper. So the flux is zero, right? So from this, we found that it depends on theta. When theta is zero, um, 
then we have the maximum value. When theta is 90, then we have the minimum value. So this is usually the property of dot product. So we can say that electric flux passing through a surface doesn't always have to be open, doesn't always have to be closed. The electric flux passing through a surface is equal to E dot S, where E is the electric field vector and S is the area vector. And the, the flux is a scalar quantity. The SI unit is Newton meter squared per coulomb. And yeah, when we have a negative um, sign of flux, that just means that it's probably in the opposite direction. So yeah, flux is for any kind of surface. It can be for closed surfaces, open surfaces, curvy surfaces, everything. It's unbiased, right? But then we come to Gauss's law. Gauss's law is more partial. Gauss's law is only for closed surfaces, right? And these closed surfaces are called Gaussian surfaces. So Gauss's law says that the net electric flux passing through any closed surface will be equal to 1 times epsilon naught times the charge enclosed by the surface. So this would mean that the flux is equal to Q enclosed by epsilon naught. And we know, we just found out, that flux is equal to E dot S. So E dot S is equal to Q enclosed by epsilon naught. We have to remember the formula flux is equal to E dot S that holds true for every surface but Gauss's law only holds true for closed Gaussian surfaces so yeah while calculating the total flux E represents the net electric field so we have to find that first as well now following this another thing that I would like to you know really drill in is that if Q enclosed is zero, then the flux is zero because there's no charge for the electric field lines to escape from, right? And if the flux is zero, then that means that the enclosed charge is zero. They're um, converses of each other. But then in both these cases, the electric field may or may not be zero. If we have a definite yes for the electric field being zero all over the Gaussian surface, then we can say that Q enclosed is zero and flux is zero because there, are no, there is no electric field at all. So we can't exactly feel, feel any effect. We can't see any lines or anything. Nothing escapes. Following this, another topic which I think is pretty important is basically the, the questions where they give us like half a sphere, like an open hemisphere or a plain sheet of paper and then they ask us to find um, the enclosed charge or the total total flux using Gauss's law I mean it's like they expect us to you know scratch our heads and say oh this is so hard but it actually has a very simple approach and remember this this method only works if we have a symmetric um, figure like this would work if we had an open hemisphere with a charge at the center or an open hemisphere with a line charge passing through the center as like one of the diameters or something. So basically in this method, what we do is we make it a Gaussian surface. We just like complete whatever is left, you know, of that open surface. And 
then we apply Gauss's law. And then after that, we just like divide into whatever we need, right? So say we have an open hemisphere and we have a positive line charge um, passing through the center of the sphere. So yeah, in this case, the Q enclosed would be the charge of that entire line charge divided by epsilon naught because now we've completed the full sphere and we've taken it to be a closed surface. But then because this is at the center, this is passing through the center rather, it's symmetric. So the flux through the upper half is equal to the flux through the lower half. So in this case, we just divide our flux by two and get Q divided by epsilon naught times one by two. So, yeah, that's about it. What's next? Yes, the net electric flux passing through a closed surface placed in a uniform electric field will always be zero. Uniform electric field, closed surface, net electric flux is zero. Got that. What else? I think that's all. After this, we'll come to the idea of what a continuous charge distribution is. Um, for this, let's consider um, all dimensions. The first dimension being um, two-dimensional A. I think that's what I'm going to call it. This is when we consider a line charge. Previously, we were working with point charges. Now we come to a line charge. Um, for this, we consider um, lambda which is charge per unit length, right? And then when we come to 2dB, we come to a plane sheet, a charged plane sheet. So here we take sigma is equal to charge per unit area. And then we come to a three-dimensional um, figure, maybe a sphere or a cube. We get that rho is equal to charge by volume where lambda is the linear charge density, sigma is the surface charge density, and rho is the volume charge density. Following this, we come to the idea of a field due to a rod. We finished flux. This is just like um, a little bit more, I guess you can say, about electric field because it's just an extra part that came after this. I completely forgot it existed. So now we find out the field due to a rod. We cut it into 100 million parts. Um, we say that the length of each small is going to be super duper small. We'll call it DL. So we take it as a point charge. We figure out the, char uh, the field due to each point charge and then we take the net field. So we keep going on and on and on and yeah. We get that the electric field is equal to k times lambda times the integration of dx divided by x squared with the limits from d to d plus l, where d is the length or the distance between the end of the rod and the point, and l is the total length of that length thing. Next, we come to bringing these two together, calculating electric field using Gauss's law. So in all these cases, what we do is we draw a Gaussian surface such that the electric field on it is symmetric. Then we calculate the electric flux on the Gaussian surface. Then we use Gauss's law, which basically says that flux is equal to Q enclosed by epsilon naught. We know that flux is equal to E dot DS. So at the end, we quickly move DS to the RHS. We get E is equal to Q enclosed divided by epsilon naught times the integration of whatever DS we would have gotten. So when we go for a point charge, 
We follow those three steps, we get E is equal to KQ divided by R squared. Next, we go to the electric field due to an infinite line charge. Again, we do the same thing. We end up with E is equal to 2K lambda divided by R, where lambda is the linear charge density. And if we were to plot this um, E versus R graph, we'd get a rectangular hyperbola. Um, after that, the electric field due to an infinitely charged plane sheet. So in this case, E is equal to sigma divided by 2 times epsilon naught. And finally, we come to the electric field due to a charged spherical shell. So here we'll take two cases, one at an internal point. When it's at an internal point, the charge enclosed will be zero. So flux will be zero and electric field will be zero. Next, we take a point at some place outside the charged spherical shell and we get epsilon naught is equal to kq divided by r where r is the distance and again this one is not a continuous graph because it's like zero as long as the distance is less than the radius of the sphere but as soon as it becomes the distance well, as soon as the distance becomes equal to the radius of the sphere like it's on the surface that's when the electric field is max and then after that it goes down and yeah, that's the end of the flux part. Or yeah, just the flux part. So, if you made it this far, then congratulations. We are now at electric dipole. Okay, this chapter is a lot longer than I expected it to be. It's almost 11 at night and I'm just very tired, but gotta push through. I'll try to finish before 11.30. If I can't finish before 11.30, that'll be really sad, but I can finish it tomorrow. But I'm gonna pretend like I can't finish it tomorrow and I'm gonna try to finish it today. I think I've said too much already. Electric dipole. It's basically a system of two equal and opposite charges separated by a very small distance. If you look at a water molecule, hydrogen's positively charged, oxygen's negatively charged, well, partially, and they're separated by a very small distance. So, dipole. Hurrah! Now, here are some things you need to know. Five important terms, um, you know, to figure out what a dipole is. The first one is the center of a dipole. Say we have plus Q and minus Q separated by distance 2A, right? Um, the center of the dipole would be the midpoint of the line segment that joins Q and minus Q. Second would be the length of the dipole. The length of the dipole is the distance between the two charges. In this case, let's take it to be 2A. Third, the axis of the dipole. The axis of the dipole is the line joining or passing through the charges. Four, charge on the dipole. It's the magnitude of the charge on any one point. And fifth, the equatorial line. It's the perpendicular bisector of the line segment, blah, blah, blah. It's basically a perpendicular line drawn through the center of the dipole. Now, following this, we come to the electric dipole moment. We represent this with a P and an arrow on top because it's a vector. So, the magnitude of the electric dipole moment is the product of the magnitude of the charges and the distance between them, right? If we look just for the magnitude, it's a vector, so it has two aspects, the magnitude and the direction. So, the magnitude is the magnitude of the charge times 2a. The direction 
always goes from the negative to the positive charge. So if we have to find um, the electric field due to an electric dipole at any point, um, we use the formula EP, which is electric field due to the dipole. Dipole is represented again by P with an arrow on top. Dipole moment um, is equal to EP is equal to KP divided by R cubed times the square root of 1 plus 3 cos squared theta. And in this case, theta is the angle made by the line joining whichever point x to the center of the dipole and the axis of the dipole. If we go for theta is equal to, um, I don't know, theta is equal to zero, then the net electric field would be 2kp divided by r cubed. If we went for, I don't know, an equatorial point where theta is equal to 90 degrees, we'd get that it's equal to minus kp divided by r cubed. And from this, we get that in terms of magnitude, the axial the electric field at an axial point is equal to two times the electric field at an equatorial point. So that's that. Next we come to um, the electric dipole in an external electric field. So in a uniform electric field, the net force on the dipole is always zero because if the force on plus Q acts downwards then or clockwise and the force on the other one acts anti-clockwise so they eventually cancel each other out but say we have a changing electric field so like I said say we have um, say a changing electric field or something or you know what this will work too a normal electric field so in this case we have our dipole at an angle theta with the electric field so we know that torque is equal to, um, yeah, so torque is equal to R cross F. In this case, our R would be, um, what would our R be? It would be, I think, A. And our force would be the force by the electric field on Q. So here we have two points. So we have two torques acting. So the net torque would be the vector sum of the two. So once we do this, we eventually end up with the equation T or torque is equal to the dipole cross electric field. So tau is equal to P cross E. And that is something that we're going to be using very often after this. And an interesting fact is this tells us how microwaves, you know, help heat up our food. So basically what happens is, remember how I told you that water had a dipole? So basically if you keep 
some food in the microwave and then you start heating it up basically what the microwave does is it just keeps changing the electric field so because of this there's no constant torque it's just it keeps flipping from one side to another just going on and on and on so the kinetic energy increases and because of that the thermal energy increases and eventually the food heats up if you were to put in a non-polar substance then you wouldn't be seeing the same effect So now we just have two topics left. The first one is electric potential difference or electric potential. And the next one would be potential energy. So let's start with electric potential. The electric potential difference between two points is defined as the work done per unit charge by an external agent in moving that charge from one point to another in an electric field without acceleration. So say we have a charge Q0 at A and we have to get it to B. We have to make sure that it moves so, so, so slowly that we have no acceleration at all. So this work would, this work divided by the charge that we moved would give us the potential difference or VB minus VA. The potential of the final position, VB, minus the potential of the initial position, VA, gives us the potential difference. And because it's the work done by the external force in moving the charge from A to B divided by Q0, the SI unit will be joules per coulomb or volts. So why is it that we need to do any work at all? Why can't we just kick it across like super quickly or just let it move by itself for that matter? It's like this. Say we have an electric field. That's what this is, right? Electric potential is it only exists if we have an electric field, right? So say there's a charge Q okay that's on our left and we have a and b on our right a is trying to move the charge q naught towards b but then q naught is positive the source charge which is generating that electric field is also positive so it's like get out of here you sucker so it starts pushing the q naught and as it pushes it it accelerates the q naught so we've got to slow it down so that that Q naught can make it from A to B without any acceleration. So for this, we need to apply a force that's opposite in the direction of the conservative force, this electrostatic, um, this electric charge. We need to apply a force opposite in direction, but equal to the magnitude. So in this case, we're the external force. So F external was equal to minus F conservative. Now, what is the relation between the work done by the external agent and the work done by the conservative force? Well, simple. The first thing we need to remember is that if we didn't have an electric field, potential difference is zero because we barely do any work in moving the charge. But this whole relation between um, the work done by an external body and the work done by the conservative charge um, that just comes when we just say that the work done by the conservative charge is equal to the force times the distance that it moved. And we know that this force is negative F external, right? So at the end of the day, we get that the work done by the conservative charge is equal to the negative of the work done by the external charge. The next thing we're going to be looking at is the electric potential at a point. So the potential at a point is defined as the work done per unit charge and bringing the charge from infinity to that point. So we're just considering um, 
our initial position to be infinity, right? So the potential difference would be our final position, say P, VP minus V infinity, and that would be equal to the work done by the external agent in moving the charge from infinity towards P divided by Q naught, which was the charge we moved. So at this point of time, we're assuming that at infinity, the potential is equal to zero. So we get that VP, the electric potential at that point, is equal to the work done by the external body divided by the charge moved. Next is the potential due to a point charge. I mean, yeah, for this derivation, it's just basically just using basic ideas. We know that the work done by an external force is equal to the product of the force and the displacement. So the work done by the external force is equal to the negative of F external times dx, right? So then we'll just quickly integrate from um, the final position being P, initial position being infinity, I don't know. Um, or no, the other way around, final position position infinity initial position p so just finish the whole thing and we end up getting that the work done by the external force in moving the charge from infinity to p is termed is equal to kq times q naught divided by r where q is the point charge k is the point charge that we would have moved or whichever test charge we would have moved we just divide that by r if we have to look for the potential due to multiple point charges what we do is we just add them like vectors now potential is equal to kq by r right of a point charge when is it positive when is it negative it's positive when the force, external force, is in the same direction as the displacement. It's negative when they're both in opposite directions. I want you to remember that. And with that, we come... Oh, we're not done yet. We come to the electric potential due to a dipole. Right? So, for a dipole, I'm just going to skip the whole derivation thing because that's like two pages long. Um, we say that the potential difference due to a dipole is equal to k times p dot r divided by r where p and r are the vectors and the denominator r is just a scalar and yeah when theta is equal to 90 degrees it's at an equatorial point so at this point the what you call it i forgot what you call it. the potential difference is zero if it, uh, if it is at zero degrees, the theta is zero degrees, then the axial point is close to plus q. The potential difference is plus kp divided by r squared. If it is at, if theta is 180 degrees, then it's in the opposite direction. So the potential is minus kp divided by r squared. And with that, we've come to the end of just potential difference. Just one more topic. And that's the end. Okay, so we have come to the last topic for today, and that is electric potential energy. And this is actually pretty important. It basically just builds on the previous idea and 
the previous idea of potential difference and all that stuff and our previous ideas of kinetic energy and potential energy all of that stuff so now what is electric potential energy so before i get to what it is i want you to imagine the situation we have let's say some charge plus q and this is generating an electric field now somewhere around it we have a charge plus q naught we need to move this charge q naught towards the point p and like we did before we need to make sure that we move it without acceleration now as we are moving it we are doing work and what is work? Work is essentially the, tra the transfer of energy. So we're moving it really slowly. We're doing some amount of work as we move it slowly without acceleration because the plus Q keeps pushing it. We need to slow it down and make sure that it moves without any acceleration. And as we're doing this work, we are transferring our energy. So now it's quite evident that we have done some non-zero work. So this would imply that there is some energy involved. But where does it go? Because there's no change in the acceleration or anything, we can't exactly say that the there's been an increase in kinetic energy. An increase or a decrease for that matter, right? So kinetic energy is ruled out. So where would this energy have gone? This energy is stored as potential energy and this is due to the interaction of the charge with the electric field if we didn't have to slow down that charge because the plus q was pulling it i mean pushing it we wouldn't have had to put in any work at all but because we are doing some work because of another charge that is having some effect is interacting with the charge that we are trying to move Due to that interaction, we have had to do some work and this work is stored as energy and because there is no acceleration or change in the speed, we can say that it's not stored as kinetic energy, it is stored as potential energy and this potential energy is what we call electric potential energy. Now, if the electric field is zero, then there's no field, right? That's that's what it means and if there, there's no field that in it that essentially just means that there's no charge that is you know exerting some force so there's no interaction if we just like randomly plop in a charge then and, and it's like all alone then there's nothing that can have an influence on it it's not interacting with anything per se right so here we don't have to do any work we can just we may as well just nudge the charge a teensy bit and it goes all the way to the other side of the globe right so because of this, the work done is so negligible that we take it to be zero. So there's no energy involved and no potential energy stored. So when we talk electric potential energy, we make sure that it always involves at least two charges, right? And here I'd also like to help you understand the difference between two things. The first one is the electrostatic field and an electric field. An electrostatic field, here we usually mean that this means that the field is constant, it's uniform, there's no change um, in unit time. But then when we look at an electric field, that just means that it varies with time. Now, at the very beginning of this whole chapter's explanation, I had spoken about Coulomb's law and how, how similar that was to Newton's law of gravitation. So in that case too, we had gravitational potential energy. That was basically the amount of energy that we'd have to, that would be supplied or that would be involved due to this interaction between the mass and the gravitational force. So as we lift the mass from the surface of the earth or any surface for that matter, slowly. 
So in both the cases, we are moving something to someplace else while it is interacting with, while it is under the influence of some other body and making sure that the acceleration is zero. There is work being done to counteract the interactions that it's having with the other body. And this work, because it's a transfer of energy, um, we need to give it some name, right? It can be kinetic energy, so we're going to be calling it electric potential energy. Now, for change in potential energy, we just say that the change in the potential energy of a system is defined as the negative of the work done by the conservative forces as the configuration of the system changes. So UF, which would be the final potential energy, minus UI, the initial potential energy, is equal to the negative of WC, the work done by the conservative force. By a conservative force, what do I mean by this? I just mean that this is a force um, whose work doesn't depend on the path that it took, right? So eventually, we end up with um, the work done by conservative um, by conservative force being equal to negative delta U. After this, we'll talk about the potential energy of a system of two charges. When we consider a system of two charges, let's consider um, them to be, I don't know, Q1 and Q2. Now, just to make it a lot easier to understand what's going on, we're not going to bring them in together. We're going to bring them in one by one. And where are we bringing them? Let's just imagine this really empty space. There's nothing around it to exert any influence whatsoever. So, initially, there is no interaction between Q1 and Q2. Let's say that they're at opposite ends of infinity or something, right? So now the potential energy is defined as the work done by an external agent in establishing the system by bringing the charges from some place, in this case, infinity, without any acceleration and or any kinetic energy. And therefore, yeah, that's potential energy. If it's not kinetic energy, it's obviously potential. So now what are we doing? Our charges are at infinity, everybody's happy, but now we need to do something. So we slowly bring our Q1 into the scene. Now as we bring Q1 from infinity to this point, say O, the potential energy is zero because there's nothing around for it to interact with, right? So it just made its way there happily. We barely had to do any work in getting it there because we weren't trying to fight off the influence of another body. Right? So in moving Q1, it was zero. But then when we had to move um, Q2 from infinity, we did have to do some work. We're the external force. So we know that in this case, the conservative force from Q1, that is acting outwards. It's pushing Q2 away because both of them are positive. So it's pushing Q2 away. So that would be acting towards the right. But then we need to bring Q2 towards Q1. So we need to counteract this force and our force, the one that we're exerting, will be towards the left. And in this case, the work done would be the negative of the force exerted times the distance moved. So at the end of the day, we get that the work done in bringing this thing from wherever it was in infinity to a point around Q1, that work ends up being KQ1Q2 divided by R. Now, after saying everything that I did before, you may be wondering where KQ1Q2 by R came from. That came from what the force is, the definition of a force, the formula for a force, right? So the work done 
by an external force and bringing a charge from infinity to some point A is equal to KQ1Q2 divided by R. And because the work external is equal to UA minus U infinity, U infinity is taken to be zero, right? They're just randomly in a place where there's no um, potential energy at all. Right, so we take u infinity to be zero, we end up with the formula u is equal to kq1q2 divided by r. Now, if we had a system of point charges, then we just add all of them up. Say we have q1, q2, and q3, and the distances between q1 and q2 is r1, 2, and the distance between q2 and q3 is r2, 3, and between q3 and q1 is r3, 1. Now, if we have to find like the complete um, potential energy of the system of point charges, we would just take it to be equal to KQ1Q2 divided by R12 plus KQ2Q3 divided by R23 plus KQ3Q1 divided by R13. And if we have more than that, we can just keep going on and on and on. Now for a quick relation between electric potential and potential energy. Electric potential. Here we considered the work done, we considered the difference, the electric potential difference to be equal to the work done by the external force divided by the charge moved, right? So if we brought the external work done, the work done by the external force onto one side, we would get W is equal to Q times VB minus VA. And then when we look at potential energy, the work done by an external force in bringing something from A to B, that would be equal to UB minus UA. So we end up with the relation that potential difference is equal to the difference in potential energy divided by Q. So delta V is equal to delta U divided by Q, where Q is the charge that was moved. After this, we're going to talk about equipotential surfaces. Equipotential surfaces are, well, the name tells you enough, right? It's basically the locus of points which have an equal potential with respect to some point from which we're measuring, right? So the surface all over which the potential is constant. So say we have a point charge, right? At some distance r, the potential difference, if we are to bring some common charge and we keep it at any point around this point charge say q naught if we keep it at a specific distance r then throughout that surrounding sphere no matter where you keep it on that sphere of say radius r we're going to have the same potential which is k q naught q divided by r remember where q naught is the one at the middle and q is the one that we're keeping here so wherever we keep the q on this sphere at a distance of r from q Q naught, sorry, we're going to have an equal potential, right? But say we move it to, um, I don't know, a radius R dash away from the um, point charge. Now it's not the same, right? Because there is a greater distance. So now your denominator has changed. So you can't exactly have the same potential. Now when we consider an equipotential in an electric field, we have to make sure that the electric field and the equipotential surface are perpendicular. In this way, the work done will be zero and that's pretty much all we need.
So what are the properties of our equipotential surfaces? Number one, um, the electric field is always perpendicular to the surface of the equipotential surface. I'm just going to call it equipot because that's a lot easier. Number two, no work is done in moving the charge on the surface of the equipot because they're all... We use the same energy to bring this point from God knows where to that equipotential surface. That point, um, that locus of points rather, around the Q naught where everything was supposed to be constant. So now when you move it from this side to another, it'll be the same. And number three, two equipot surfaces never intersect. After this, we come to what I think is the last topic under this. Yes, it is. The potential energy of a dipole in an external electric field. So, like I said before, a dipole is just um, a system of these two charges that are equal in magnitude but opposite in charges that are separated by a very small distance. So let's say, let's take them to be plus Q and minus Q divided by a very small distance to A. Now, let's keep it in a uniform electric field. So here, we see that there is a torque acting on this dipole due to the electric field. We've spoken about this before, right? So now when we talk about the potential energy, what we're doing is we get into the system and we do some work to neutralize the torque. Like if the torque is pushing our dipole um, anti-clockwise, we have to do some work which is stored as potential energy because work is a transfer of energy. We have to do some work in the clockwise direction to make sure that this effect of the torque by the electric field on our dipole is cancelled. And at the end of the day, we end up with the expression U is equal to the negative of P dot E where P is the dipole and E is the electric field and both of them are vectors. And finally, the relation between electric field and potential. Um, this is electric field and potential, not potential energy. So I just want you to remember that. And this relation would be delta V is equal to the negative of E dot L where L is the displacement of the charge, E is the electric field, and both of them are vectors. Now, one final thing to note from this previous thing that I just gave, the previous expression, delta V is equal to negative of E dot L. One thing to remember is that the potential decreases from a... Well, it de I'm sorry. The potential decreases along the direction of the field. The potential energy decreases along the direction of the field and this is an important result that we need to keep in mind and with that i come to the end of today's physics explanations yay